Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle, and what you're about to listen to is a little bit different to what we normally do on the podcast. I normally record interviews a little bit in advance, and we take on more general theoretical topics. Um, we will be discussing current events on this one. So I recorded this yesterday. As I was recording, a million people were marching in my home country's capital, London, demanding an end to the Brexit process. That's what I'm going to take on. I've been thinking for the longest time I wasn't going to cover Brexit on this show, and I've decided to do so. This is a longer episode than we normally do. It's going to be closer to more like the length of two episodes. Ordinarily, what I would do is break up this episode into a two-parter. That's been quite common for this show. But given that we're talking about events that are actively unfolding, I just have a fear that what we're talking about is going to be obsolete in a week's time. Indeed, so hectic and fast-moving is this process that a lot of what we're talking about is obsolete 24 hours later as I'm releasing this. So I recorded this on Saturday. I'm releasing it on Sunday. And already since then, there's been a new development in the story that it seems like there's a concerted push for Theresa May to resign as the price to be paid for her party to vote for her deal. I don't know that that will happen. It might, it might not. And even if it does... I don't know that that gets us out of the fundamental mechanics that we describe at the end of this interview. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But it just goes to show how fluid this situation is and how difficult it is to say anything about it. Because as soon as you've said something, something else has happened. So... Anyway, let's just get straight to the topic. Um, my guest today is Kathy Barry, who I know from Philosophy Twitter. She does the Irish Philosophy blog, where she posts all sorts of articles on the history of Irish philosophy and the history of thought from that part of the world. Um, and we've both been commenting on Brexit a lot, and so... Um, as two sort of amateur political theorists, I invited her on to see if we could make some sense of this. I don't know that we did. We ended by saying we we couldn't decide either what we wanted to happen or what we uh, thought was going to happen. But hopefully we covered some interesting ground in uh, in in doing so. I will say I think a great advantage of having Cathy on was that she brought an Irish perspective to this and someone who's well-versed in Irish history because a lot of the accounts of this have been quite England-centric even, not even Britain-centric, and the Irish border really has become the central question that this whole mess has revolved around. She's also someone, as you'll hear, who's well-versed in the history of republicanism and the history of the Constitution, and we talk a lot about what this means for constitutionalism. So, one perhaps, like, slight warning for this is, although we did attempt to give an explainer at the beginning about what Brexit is, what the Good Friday Agreement is, why the issue of the Irish border has proved to be such a sticking point, this isn't 
an introductory episode. So if you know absolutely nothing at all about Brexit, some of the parts of this um, might be a little hard and fast. You're, you're more than welcome to join us. Please um, do tune in. Um, but for American audiences, if you want to get a handle on just what are the nuts and bolts of what's actually happening here, and hey, by the way, I wouldn't blame you. This is a fantastically complicated situation. Um, I would recommend the Talking Politics podcast, which has some great episodes um, just explaining like the actual details of what's happening. So this is a gnarly back and forth about political theory and constitutionalism and what it means to live in a democracy, popular versus parliamentary will. Um, I had a lot of fun recording it. I'm very anxious for the future of my home country, but I'm also, as a student of the history of political thought, absolutely fascinated to see some of the sorts of issues and debates that we've been talking about forever playing out in real time. So, for those of you who wanted me to cover Brexit and have been urging me to cover Brexit, this is my initial take on it. Um, I don't know whether you'll like it or appreciate it. I think my audience, I did some Twitter polling on this, tends to lean pretty hard Remain, whereas I'm more of a soft and conflicted Remainer. So you may or may not agree with me, but you know I encourage you to listen and see if you agree with the arguments that I'm making. So, yeah, big thank you to Kathy for doing this on really short notice. Um, I literally just direct messaged her on Twitter, and she was able to jump on to cover this as the crisis unfolded. And, yeah, this is um, the first time covering, um, how would you say, like, live events, current events on the podcast. It's also much longer, so please do give me feedback on both of them. If you would like the podcast to do more things like this where we cover current events, let me know. And also, is this too long? Would you prefer I continue my habit of breaking up longer interviews into two parts? Or maybe we do longer interviews but do less of them, maybe like only one or two a month. I'm not super sure that I have a preference there, so let me know. I'll maybe do some Twitter polling on that. That was a little bit of a long introduction, so without further preamble, this is me and Kathy Barry attempting to make sense of the political theory of Brexit. joined today by Kathy Barry. Welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. So we've been going back and forth on this on Twitter for, for a bit now, and I know you from your blog, um, Irish Philosophy. Do you want to say yep. a few words about that? Um, it's been running for five years. Irish Philosophy basically looks at uh, philosophers, the work of philosophers and thinkers from the island of Ireland. Um, so it's a history of philosophy blog hopefully of general interest. Cool. And I asked you on because we've both been tweeting about Brexit. And yes. 
I, I, I've been... Okay, so here's where I'm coming from. I've been saying for the longest time, I'm not going to cover Brexit on the podcast. I'm not going to cover Brexit on the podcast. And then eventually, once I was reading three hours of news on it today, I was like, okay, I've got to fucking cover Brexit on the podcast. Um, <laughs> um, and I wanted to do it with some sort of Irish perspective, because it seems like with the discussions of Northern Ireland and the backstop, which we'll explain what that means in a sec... That's become absolutely central. Um, yeah. So I didn't want to just do an Englishman living in New York, which is what I am giving his thoughts. I wanted okay. to get someone on the ground over there, and I asked you, and you were good enough to come on. Um, to begin with, then, I said I didn't want to do a like explainer of what is happening, but about 60 to 70% of my audience will be American. And I think mm -hmm. from a lot of their perspective, Brexit will just be this completely unfathomable bullshit that's happening on the other side of the pond. Um, As opposed to me, where it's completely unfathomable shit happening on this side of the pond? Is that what you mean? Uh, I mean, is there anything we could offer as like a brief explainer of like just what the facts of the case are how would you sum yeah. it up to someone who'd only just heard of this brexit is the uk leaving the eu that's fundamentally what it is and i missed a perfect chance to say brexit means brexit there but we'll carry on um so brief history yeah, why not? Yeah. Um, in June 2016, the UK voted to leave the EU. That was the question on the ballot paper. Um, it was a fairly close vote, I think 52 to 48. Uh -huh. um, it was extremely controversial and it continued to be because people couldn't decide precisely what Brexit, what Brexit meant. And the famous soundbite is Theresa May saying Brexit means Brexit. Um there were people in, in her party who wanted to have what they call a hard Brexit. That means the most ex as more fundamental break with the EU. And there are people in her party who want a soft Brexit, which means staying closer to the EU. Um, she notified the EU uh, officially of departure in March uh, 2017. And negotiations started and they are supposed to end. The anniversary of that is the 29th of March. That was the original date that the UK was supposed to leave. It was promised that that was going to happen and it's not happening. Right. Um, because it has been such a complicated process. The major things to be worked out at this phase were money, rights of citizens living in each other's areas, so UK citizens in Europe, EU, uh, EU citizens in the UK, and the Ireland. Um, and the issue with Ireland was uh, the UK is made up of two parts. One is on the island of Great Britain, and part of it is on the island of Ireland. So the UK shares a land border with an EU country and will continue to do so after they've left the EU. And that should mean a, norm, a customs border, as there is between the UK or the US and Canada. Um, however, the Good Friday Agreement signed in 1998 would, it would be against the spirit of that agreement if there was such a hard border. And in addition, under the Good Friday Agreement, there is cross-border cooperation and that cross-border cooperation will be impacted if there's different regulations on either side of that border 
And that has been a major problem for both sides trying to find a solution to that. Uh, a solution was found. Uh, it was the backstop, which basically means Northern Ireland will remain in a kind of cut-down version of the single market and would have um, customs arrangements with the EU. Um, that wasn't acceptable for reasons I will go into. Hmm. Um, Theresa May asked that the entire UK be able to stay in a customs union with the EU so that there wouldn't be kind of like checks between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Um, and that was accepted. That was the withdrawal agreement. She brought that to Parliament to get it passed, and it didn't pass. It was the largest rejection of a motion that there has been in Parliament, UK parliamentary history. And she then went off, tried to get some changes to it, and it failed again. So, therefore, she's had to ask for an extension, which is why the 29th of March is no longer Brexit Day, probably, Um and that's a short history of Brexit. I hope that helps. Yeah. So, yeah, if I were to try... Yeah, terrific. So if I were to try and explain it from, like, 90,000 feet, it would okay. be like, we voted to do this thing, which is leave the EU, which is yep. a complex series of not only trade deals, but legal arrangements and immigration arrangements. And yep. in spite of Brexit meaning Brexit, that actually <laughs> just opened up a number of different possibilities for us, anywhere from just severing ties completely mm -hmm. to a closer arrangement to basically almost there, but not quite. And yeah. then even on the Remainer side, a number of different options opened up, as in, should we call a second referendum? If so, what mm -hmm. should be on it? And... Or let's just um, call the whole thing off and revoke Article 50. And if I were to try and put what's happening in the UK into a sentence, I'd sort of say there's about four to five to six different options, and there's not an overall majority either in Parliament or probably amongst the public for any single one of those options, and no one's really been willing to come off their first preference. Yes, that's, I mean, obviously, I'm in Ireland. I'm aware that I'm not in the UK. So people may think, what does she know? But that would certainly be my impression, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is like why it's so intractable is that, that we haven't been able to force it down to a binary choice. And because we haven't, whoever we is here, the EU, Theresa May, whatever. Um, no one's really felt the need to come off their first preference, and the fact that everyone else is digging their heels in just makes people want to do so even more. That would be my read of it, essentially. Yeah. At the moment, I mean, we had the withdrawal agreement, and uh, various UK analysts I've listened to suggest that um, nobody wants to be the first domino. Basically, if people are going to vote for Theresa May's deal, they will have to kind of... Um, Nobody wants to be the first to give way. And in terms of everyone else's, uh, the kind of the indicative vote that they're talking about as a solution, where you basically have MPs voting on all the different options, the danger is there that, yes, everyone will vote for their favourite option and nobody will really move in terms of co coalescing on one thing. That's that's a big danger. Um, and th there is deep division bet between people's feelings about what should happen. So it's it's kind of, it's not academic. If it was academic, 
it might be easier, but it's a lot of deeply held beliefs that people have held over many years that are kind of involved here. So Yeah. Um, okay, just to end our explainer, um, you mentioned the Good Friday Agreement. This is another one of those things. It's like explaining the offside rule or something. Um, okay. Could we... I mean... Could we could we offer? I mean, in 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 a very nutshell, obviously, Northern Ireland was deeply contested between different factions, often violently contested for a long time, and the mm. Good Friday Agreement was a series of compromises that essentially, while those divisions remain, allowed them to remain more or less bloodlessly. Um, what else would you want to add to that? Um, yes, the Good Friday Agreement um, ended the the Republic of Ireland's claim uh, to Northern Ireland as a territory that they had kind of should have jurisdiction over. It basically kind of set the current settlement in stone in a way, um, but allowed for a future of it potentially uh, a border poll happening that would allow Northern Ireland to join the Republic of Ireland, but only if the people of Northern Ireland agree. So that point basically put a line under any ideas that violence could change that. No, it's got to be with the peaceful consent of the people. The other major uh, role of the Good Friday Agreement was to set up institutions and processes um, to be a peace process, to build peace, to build interaction between the communities, to encourage people to work together. And I mean, one of the most famous images associated with that are two people who are completely opposed to each other. Um, and most, one of the most iconic images um, from the kind of post-Good Friday Agreement settlement was a picture of um, Dr. Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness together laughing, like, say, tw 10 years ago even, I don't think that would have been thinkable, that you would have a picture like that. And that's obviously being threatened by this, right? So mm. part of the Good Friday Agreement, which is, when was that? That was late 90s. It was when Blair first came in, right? The Good Friday Agreement? It was 1998. Yeah. Um, so we've had a big part of what stopped the violence there, or not. I mean, I mean, actually, that's the question. How far do you think having that open border was necessary to get the Good Friday Agreement running? Was that a central part of what made that work, do you think? I don't know. Um, well, the um, Good Friday Agreement actually opened the border right. because um, up to then, the EU single market and customs union had done away with all customs controls. Mm. So, but in 1993 on, there were no customs controls, no regulatory checks between, uh, I'm going to say the Republic of Ireland, the official mm -hmm. state name is Ireland, but anyway, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, but there was a huge security border. So if you drove across, I went across my family and mm. you would get stopped by a soldier with a big gun who would, you know, check your license or check whatever and wave you on your way or pull you aside and check your car. Um, and the Good Friday Agreement, part of that was desecuritizing the border. So basically getting rid of the, the soldiers, getting rid of the checkpoints, getting rid of the watchtowers, getting rid of the, all that paraphernalia that made it really obvious when you were moving from Northern Ireland to the Republic of Ireland and vice versa. 
and and it matters a lot to people. It, it does, and I think people feel um, that if they go back to a border, uh, if we have um, customs posts and regulatory checks, you need infrastructure for those. Historically, what has happened was they were targets by uh, paramilitaries. So you had, you know, you had bombs, you had uh, attacks, you had vandalism, you had all of these things. And um, two chiefs of the PSNI have pointed out that if you have this infrastructure, you will end up uh, the danger is you will need to get police to protect the infrastructure. If the police get attacked, you're going to need soldiers to protect the police. And you end up rolling back the entire uh, desecuritization of the border that the Good Friday brought in. So that's the sense in which it's against the spirit. The Good Friday Agreement does not say in so many words there must will be an open border. But it will mean that the border that was brought made open by the Good Friday Agreement is in risk of uh, being done away with. You can't imagine a worse aesthetic than having British soldiers back manning installations on the border. It would just, it would look terrible. Yes, it would look terrible, yes. (laughs) Um, But it's also... It's also fundamentally a problem for people's lives because you, if say, if you people work and shop and go to school across the border, so imagine you're going to school and uh, you know you get stopped every time you go, you know, two miles down the road, and people worry about things which may not happen, but they worry, for example, about border roads closing because that happened a lot for security. There were so many roads. There's more than. 200 crossing points on kind of on the on the Irish border and so basically a lot of them were closed to make it easier to secure them and easier to control who was crossing and um people worry about that kind of thing that you know they'll have to go the long way around to get from one half of their farm on one side of the border to the other side of the border you know this is uh yeah it's it's not just a academic or aesthetic it's a kind of daily life issue mm. That's a great point. Um, but this is what's become essentially ground zero for Brexit, right? Yes, unfortunately it has. And it really isn't helpful for um, politics in the North. But uh, yes, it has. So basically, the border you're describing, um, both you know historically, the parents, but also just like going to school, um, if England... Well, not England, if the UK were to truly leave the EU in a hard or hardish sense, mm. we'd have to enforce that border in some way because we'd no longer be in a customs union. But there's absolutely no appetite to put a hard border by anyone except for maybe like the ERG. Um, so that's proved the sticking point. And that's yes. what this whole thing has come down to. Yes, the question is, how do you get? I mean, even the ERG don't say necessarily we want a hard border. They believe it is possible to achieve an open border by some other way than having the e, the uh, Northern Ireland in a cut down version of the single market combined with a customs union, and definitely without the UK having to be in a customs union. The like they don't want the whole of Great Britain in a customs union with the, the EU. 
But they're not... Would they be willing to tolerate a deal wherein Northern Ireland is in some sort of customs union, but the rest of the UK isn't, and there's some sort of check across the Irish Sea? I might... I would... uh, (laughs) Some people think that is the case, yes. Quite a few people think that's the case. Yeah. Okay. So that's our um, idiot's guide to Brexit. Either for idiots or from idiots, depending on your <laughs> perspective. Yeah, yeah. Let, let, let's let's get into the sort of political theory. Before oh, before we do, you mentioned that a number of quotes from Irish philosophers had been resurfacing in this debate. Do you have one or two of them and how they've been used just to get us started? I have lots of them. Um Let's have a look. Well, immediately after the vote, you had two swift quotes going around, one of which was um, on the the people who were pro-leave were going, it is a folly of too many to mistake the echo of a London coffee house for the voice of the kingdom. So basically, you know, you you liberal elites, you got it wrong. Um, Whereas on the other hand, you had the Remain people who were... um, very angry about certain issues about funding and so forth. There's basically been a lot of accusations that the Leave campaign overspent, um, told lies, misrepresented, and that's how they won. And so for the Remain side, the swift quote was, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after it. From the art of political lying by Swift. Um, Yes, yes. So, um, but right now, probably the most quoted one is from Burke um, because there has been a lot of controversy over what MPs should do. Should they vote the way their constituents want? Should they vote uh, the way the government wants? Who? What's the most important, party or country? And so this has been quoted. Your representative owes you not his industry only, but his judgment, and he betrays instead of serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion. So that brings us on to the first big political theory question that's raised by this, which is popular democracy versus parliamentary democracy, right? Um, I guess I can give my two cents on this one first, is it seems like... So in other words, popular democracy would be like you have a referendum, you take it directly to the people. Parliamentary democracy is you elect representatives who then make decisions on your behalf. Now, in the US, we don't really do the referendum thing nationally. We do do it on a state level sometime. Mm-hmm. In the UK, we do it on a national level, often for quite like deep constitutional questions. So this isn't the first one. We had a referendum on Scotland's independence. We had a referendum on our voting system. Um... But There's been very few, though. The interesting thing is, I believe the first referendum in the UK was over joining the EU. Was that... I don't believe. I think that might have been the first. And you've had Northern Ireland, Wales. I, I think Wales and Scotland have had votes over uh, independence. No, sorry, only Northern Ireland had a vote over the Good Friday Agreement, and Scotland had a vote over independence. But they were only regional, not national. Yeah, and we also had one in the north of England, I think, over if we wanted a regional assembly, and we said no. Yeah, it was like John Prescott's idea, um, and it it just wasn't sold well. No one understood what it was for, and it went down like 60-40 or something. 
yeah, yeah. Um, and then there has been a rash of them in under Cameron. So you had the proportional representation and you had Brexit. One of my theories as to how we got here is that it's kind of like a gambler who got a bit cocky and took on too large a bet in that he sort of had a... Okay, so we, we could maybe do this as context briefly. He sort of had a history of solving problems by sort of calling a referendum against himself. So he had a problem in that his coalition partners, the Lib Dems, wanted a different voting system. So he sort of just calls their bluff and says, let's take it to the people, knowing that no one really wants this other thing. Wins. Mm. Um, getting all these demands for Scottish independence. Cool. Let's put it to the people wins, and then has this really gnarly, intractable problem where somewhere between a third and a half of his party are just hard Eurosceptics. Cool. Let's put it to the people. Loses. Sort of like a, the charm. <laughs> yeah, but just sort of like a gambler who made one too many bets is sort of how I read Cameron in that situation. But then that leaves us with this problem of, in theory, the British people have voted one way, but there seems no either will or ability on the part of Parliament to actualise that preference. And I'll give you my view, which is it seems like both sides are putting are taking too extreme a position on what a referendum can or should mean. So to like to the ERG, the hard Brexiters, it means everything. Like the fact that we had 52% means that they can unilaterally impose a vision of what Brexit means on the rest of us, even though their vision would probably maybe only be half of the people who voted for Brexit. On the other side, there's Remainers who just basically want to say that the referendum was completely illegitimate and doesn't mm. count at all for anything that seemed to be going too far as well. So I find myself uneasy with the constitutional implications of what both sides are saying, if carried through. Does that make sense? Um, yes, it does make sense. But I would also make another comment about the referendum itself, because I'm coming from an Irish context. Right. We have a, we've had far too many referendums, <laughs> to be honest. Um, we have a constitution written down. Yeah. Um, we can change it via referendum. And um, so anytime we have a referendum, it is written down exactly what the implications will be. Right. So you have the actual kind of description of the law, the law will be worked out in advance. So, for example, we recently had, uh, say, the, the uh, let's say, gay marriage referendum. Hmm. And exactly what that meant was written down. The law was worked out beforehand and we voted on it. So there wasn't any ambiguity. Right. And I mean, I think in America, where there have been a few amendments to the constitution the same would apply the law is there you know what you're voting for if you vote no it stays the same if you vote yes you know what's going to happen that's not the case with brexit with brexit it meant leaving the eu which could mean it, it's a bit like uh saying are you going to leave the house or are you going to stay home if you stay home you stay home if you leave the house where are you going who knows? That's still up for grabs, and that's what's basically been happening, that people can't agree on where to go. No, so agreed, and let's just stipulate that the referendum was 
terribly phrased, right? Like, just the, the construction of it. Does that mean that then we can just... Comp- we, we're under no obligation to take seriously the result. We can just completely... I mean, just as we're speaking, I think the petition to just revoke Article 50 has passed 2 million signatures. So there is a chunk, it may be a minority, but they're, they're not a tiny minority, and they're certainly a very passionate one, who genuinely just do seem to feel that, like, we're, we're under no obligation to follow this whatsoever. Um, well, there's two things. There's the legal thing and there's the political thing. Legally, it was a non-binding vote. Politically, Cameron said it would be carried out. There's also the other political thing, which is if you're carrying it out and it's a total disaster and everyone, if a lot of people wanted to, to revoke Article 50, is it wrong to give them that opportunity? But that is really more looking towards a people's vote kind of solution rather than a pure revoking um, by parliament or by, uh, you know, government. And to be honest, I don't see either parliament or government revoking on their own behalf. I, I just politically can't see it happening. No, I can't see it politically either. I mean, even to my mind, the idea of a second vote seems politically a long shot. I guess I was just asking more on the sort of what ought to happen mm. level. Um, so, I mean, we, we can get to um, the ERG and, like, the, the ways it's being abused on the other side. But on my side, well, I mean, my side, I, I voted Remain. Um, but it does seem like people are saying things that have constitutional implications mm. that I don't think they would be comfortable with. So you hear it yeah, all yeah, the yeah. time from the far left. They say constitutional change shouldn't be decided by plebiscite, which is a fancy word for a a direct election. Constitutional change shouldn't... And they just say it as this self-evident thing. Um, And they'll go on to say how people who voted for Brexit were so stupid and so misinformed and so lied to. And I'm just like, you're just describing any election here. Like, (laughs) everything you're describing, what you're presenting here is actually an argument against democracy, right? And I don't think you'd be willing to really follow that through. And if you really believe that it's impermissible for... It's only permissible for constitutional change to be decided by Parliament and the public can never have any direct input, then presumably you'd be fine with a future Conservative government unilaterally deciding to invoke Brexit against the wishes of the people. But no, obviously you wouldn't be fine with that. So what are you saying? Does that make sense? Mm. Like, you're not... You're You're not making a general principle. It's special pleading for this particular case, yeah. Which, I mean, we all do, but then is there a general principle that can be invoked here, or is it all just special pleading? Sorry, go ahead. Um, Well, I feel the major lesson of Brexit is the English constitution, or I should say the British constitution, is not really designed for plebiscite. So if we're going to be doing this a lot or you're going to be doing it a lot, it really needs to have some kind of process built around it. Um, because this doesn't really work. It doesn't fit very well. Because, because And because of this being an open question, you've basically ended up turning it back to your representatives. And 
you know, the representative owes you his judgment. He doesn't owe you his uh, his vote. He's not the, in the British system for centuries. The idea has been he's a representative. He is not basically carrying out your orders. So I can't see how this particular case, it just doesn't fit properly. That's the whole problem. It is the case that broke the British constitution, right? Um, because... Yes. I mean, should we briefly cash out the written unwritten thing? So in Ireland, like like the United States, you have a constitution that is written down. And people are going to be like, well, what else would you have? And in Britain, we, we don't. We have, how would one say this? People say we do have a written constitution. It's just written in a lot of places. And no one agrees what those places are. Uh, uh, that's not quite true, though. I mean, there's a few places people do agree on. Um, they say you don't have a codified constitution. Right. It's not because it's not written down in one place. Um, so you've got Magna Carta, Bill of Rights. Um, let's see, you've a couple of parliamentary acts from the start of the 20th century, habeas corpus, all those nice things. Um, but yes, it's all over the place. And so it's actually, you can't sit down and read it in one mm. place. And yes, there is arguments. A lot of it is in institutions. It, how parliament works isn't all laid down in nice, neat rules. There's a lot of customs and procedures. And um, yes, what's, I can't think of the word, um, that that kind of government, how things rule uh, or how things work. But because they're not written down, people can argue about how applicable they are. And this is all very based on the common law, which was uh, where the idea of having a constitution like this is kind of in, intricately bound up with this constitutional idea. So common law basically is uh, based on precedent. So you, you do have statute law made by parliaments, but you also have law that is made by judges uh, arguing about how a case... Yeah, sorry, I'll start again. You have common law is not only statutes made by parliaments, but it's also uh, based on judgments and precedent. So if you have agreed something in a... Or judged something one way, you have to keep on judging it that way, in, in effect. Um, and so that is quite close to the UK constitution, which is basically built up over time, as uh, Yeats said of Burke's theories of British government, it's like a tree. It doesn't, uh, it wasn't just built in one day, and we kind of all tinker with it afterwards. It has grown organically from, you know, common law and custom and ancient decrees. Sorry. That was a bit long. No, no, that was a good explainer, um, which still sounds quite fantastical and otherworldly, I think, to an American ear. I mean, yeah. maybe I put it too strongly in that this broke the British Constitution. It's still, we're still all here, right? Um, it, it's, yeah. Is it like we've lost our constitutional innocence in that all of what you just said is like that stuff people who study the history of the political thought get into, or like you debate if you do a politics degree. But it's not something that ever, like, like the proverbial man on the street had to worry about. 
Whereas now it actually is. Now it's it's no now our constitution has sort of been removed from these airy realms of academic debate and we really are testing the limits of things like mm. popular versus parliamentary will, like collective cabinet responsibility, like what the questions you just raised of, of what what is owed to judgment versus constituents. These are now very immediate and they need a solution. Yeah, and it's been, well, for somebody who knows the history, it's been fascinating with all the old terms coming back. So if you you have, for example, the Henry VIII powers that the government are going to need to uh, make changes after the UK leave the EU, because there's so much law needs changing. Henry VIII powers basically ruling by decree and you don't have to put it through Parliament. Um, they're the kind of powers that James I tried to uh, use, or James I of England and Sixth of Scotland. And um, that is why the 1704 judgment that Burko just invoked to stop May keeping on putting her agreement to Parliament and voting on it. I mean, you have all this stuff that's coming up from the past. Uh, you've got the Miller case. Um, the Miller case, let's just check. The Miller case uh, hinged on the case of proclamations from 1608. I mean, we've all this really old law that's being brought in because people are trying to do things um, that people tried to do during kind of the most formative times of the British Constitution, which was in the 17th century, when you basically had civil wars over it. And people are bringing these in going, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't go past Parliament. You can't just keep on asking us a question until we say yes. Um, but it does show, I think, a constitution under strain that people are needing to do this, needing to invoke rules that are you know, 400 years old. You know, I mean, it is not normal. It, w- it would be fascinating if it weren't terrifying, you know? Yes, I agree, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's great as, like, I have been drawn into this as a sort of um, history of political thought nerd because it, it, it it's all just coming... It's not quite come to a head. I'll throw this one out. You'll know the British Constitution has finally getting towards that break point when we ask the question, what will the Queen do? And that hasn't quite been asked yet. Well, people on the ground are, have... Been, have asked that, I'm afraid, yes. Um, but I'm not really sure what you can do. It might... Do you think we might get to the point with some divided state of government where she might have to ask someone else to form a minority government? There are those sorts of powers. Mm. Yes, there are those sorts. Um, it's possible. I, it's... V- the problem is it's so hard to see because of the division and because the Conservative Party are split, the Labour Party are split. It's quite hard to see where you'd get that uh, government from. I mean, really, I'd be hoping the indicative votes, you know, do actually come up with something that everyone can agree on. Even if it's going to be borderline, at least it would be better than this kind of amorphous situation where... It's not clear what people go for. What would you like to see them come up with, and what do you think they will come up with? I don't really feel comfortable. To, um, being Irish, you know, I kind of feel like I don't want to be 
even even answering that question hmm. um because it is completely a, a british problem or not and a British decision, and I kind of feel it's not something I even should be commenting on. My one feeling is I would strongly feel that the open border uh, for Northern Ireland and cross-border cooperation should be protected. Um, well, sort of, sort of like so, I never really ventured an opinion on the Scottish independence question. Yeah, I sort I of said, I sort of, <laughs> I sort of, my my opinion on that was, I thought it'd be a fucking mess if it did pass, and it probably wouldn't be in Scotland's interest. But with that said, if they really want it, do it. Do you know what I mean? That was yeah, sort of my yeah. opinion there, and I guess. Well, there's another situation which is, I think that um, it ha if it's not, you know, if something happens and most of the people in the UK aren't happy with it, that's not a stable situation. So the best solution is one that ends up with a stable UK, ideally with minimal economic damage. But stable UK, I think, is the key, the key one for everybody in in Europe and the world. You know. So I'm drawn inexorably to the conclusion that the only thing that even begins to make sense is like the softest of soft Brexits. So like we leave the EU, but we're still part of the customs union. We're still, you know, all of that, right? There's no need for a hard border. And that that sort of solves a few problems. We are honouring the spirit of the referendum. We're not saying this does not count. The people who voted for this uh, we can just write off completely. There is some legitimacy to it, but there's not so much constitutional legitimacy that one fraction within one party gets to unilaterally impose a vision over the rest of us that's going to be very economically damaging. On the other side, you know, a lot of, like, the good things the, the, the Remain side want out of the EU, we still have, and if we do that, presumably we'll still we won't we'll still be able to have the open border in Ireland and so on. Now, mm. the problem with that, and, and and that just seems to me like like in terms of the moral logic of constitutionalism, mm. that's where that leads. My problem with that is I don't one practically I don't know that it will happen. I just don't know that the Conservative Party can commit to that and still exist. Yeah. Um so the, the only path to that is, like, we get an extension and then a future Labour government, and the Labour government does Brexit and negotiates it and passes it and doesn't have the troubles that this Conservative government has had. It's just such a long road. And then the other problem I have with it is more moral, in that, like, how do you say something is the democratic outcome that is basically nobody's first choice? Well, I guess, again, you're stuck with a problem of we don't know what people's first choice was. We know that they chose to leave the EU. Um, and that's another source of contention that people have said, oh, the Leave campaign, we're all talking about Norway and, and Switzerland. And, you know, over the following three years, uh, you know, Norway and Switzerland have suddenly become absolutely unacceptable options and and you to be fair as well you have it on the other side as well remain also have been saying nope norway's totally unacceptable we'd be rule taker it's you know it's ridiculous and i mean there is the question of what's the point why leave the eu to be kind of in a semi eu like state you know where you would still have the same regulations and so forth um I feel like so, there yeah. is there is an answer to that question though of what's the point 
is symbolism matters, and I think the weakness of the Remain side is that they have given no value at all. So what's the best argument for Brexit? Because we all know there's a lot of bad ones, right? There's a lot of misunderstandings. There's a lot of just frankly not being aware of what the EU does. And let's be real, there's a lot of closed-mindedness, xenophobia, shading off into outright bigotry, right? Let's Mm. be real, there's all those bad arguments. What's the best case we could construct for it? Is that it's... It's a denial of legitimacy. It's a refusal of consent of the governed. It's people expressing symbolically that they don't like a particular form of governance, right? And so you're giving you're giving a symbol to a symbol. You're saying, fine, you know, Britain is sovereign, you know, but as a sovereign entity, we are still choosing to engage in all of these trade pacts and so on, Mm. and. If Brexit had been handled much better, you can imagine a scenario where a more adept prime minister said something to the fact of, we're leaving the EU because the EU has failed and it's failed to secure the consent of the governed. But yes, we'd still like all those benefits, thank you. Yeah, I can easily imagine a kind of alternative scenario where uh, people had gone for Norway option, um, you know, close vote, uh, you know, so maybe a clo- not completely being far away from Europe reflects maybe the fact 48% of people wanted to stay within the EU. Um, and you also have the kind of Edmund Burke argument, you could call it, um, where Edmund Burke argued in his reflections on the French Revolution that revolutions are dangerous where they destroy institutions. And like it or not, the UK has become very bound up with the EU and a lot of kind of institutions, um, standards agencies, all of that kind of thing, are actually in the EU. Um, So from Edmund Burke's point of view, it would be more sensible to take a small movement away from the EU and regain sovereignty and potentially move further away in the future rather than doing a radical break right now. Because radical breaks are just dangerous and you lose the kind of the checks and balances that exist in the state and are you basically are left then with nothing you have to build up from scratch yeah that's where i'm at and i mean you could tell another story right where it's counter historical but you can tell another story where immediately after brexit wins they say okay we're going to do a second vote not as like a redo i think there is just this fear maybe justifiable even amongst Remainers, that a second vote is just like cheating, like we're just going to keep doing it till we get the response that we like. Mm. Um, But we do a second vote where we say, okay, what does Brexit mean? And you give people all the options, you know, from Norway to May's deal to hard Brexit, whatever else, right? Mm. And then if nothing can command an outright majority, you do like ranked choice or something. And you can well imagine that something like Norway would come out on top in ranked choice. But then you would end up with this weird case where the UK government would be pursuing a policy that maybe less than 10% of the population would have picked as their first choice, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and if it wasn't Norway, you'd have this again the same the strange situation that MPs would be implementing something they didn't actually, in their best judgment, think was right. So yes, it's it's a problem again. I'm kind of going back to the thing of maybe the best thing to do. And again, in a counter-historical situation is you decide what option you're going for, you put it on the ballot paper. But Cameron had his reasons for not doing that, in that um, I think he didn't want to maybe make it to to kind of give it more credence by being specific about it. But because he wasn't specific, um, Leave could basically appeal to a, a broad kind of uh, consensus of people who wanted to leave the EU but didn't agree on how. Yeah, I mean, is there anything to be said there? I mean, the general narrative has simply just become Cameron bolstered up, essentially, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he... There was just sort of a hubris there that did, my readers—they just never—they never really seriously entertained the possibility that they'd lose. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever read. Well, you probably not. Brexit in Ireland by Tony Connolly. No, I so haven't. He, yeah, he. Uh, it goes right back to before the vote, and you had Enda Kenny going along and uh, apparently said to David Cameron that you know, well, you want to be careful, and this economic thing you know, isn't probably enough and uh, so forth. And no, David Cameron felt quite comfortable that it would be fine. It would be exactly the same as Scotland, that people would go, nope, this isn't my economic interests. But the problem is Leave had a had a story, if you want, and uh, Remain didn't. And Leave's story is basically, well, sovereignty, to bring in a a kind of the, when talking about political philosophy, um, about sovereignty, about the loss of sovereignty uh, being in the EU. And then you had kind of um, other stories about uh, that kind of appeal to the idea of Britain as kind of outward looking nation. So you have your trade deals, so you have all that kind of thing that we can go out into the world. We won't be, you know, shackled to the corpse of the EU, that we will be able to go out and be an independent country and uh, be a leader again. And I think that's a much more attractive story than, you know, yeah, your your kind of standard of living is going to stay the same. That's yeah. That's not really... Yeah. I mean, almost uniquely on the British left, even though I voted for Remain, I thought Leave was going to win. My logic was people really believe in what they're voting for. Maybe mistakenly, but they really believe it. They're really invested in it, and there's not that invest. There is now that we've lost, but at the time there just wasn't, you know? Yeah. There was yeah. no sense of it. I guess let's close with sovereignty. Um, do you have anything to say here, especially drawing on the history? Because it seems to me like on the... I mean, left and right is maybe even the wrong term, but on the Remain side, the view is essentially that sovereignty is bullshit and that it's kind of just like this mm-hmm. weird symbolism that people have attached themselves to. It doesn't really mean anything, and it's just an excuse people have given themselves to make bad, emotionally motivated decisions. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that is the case. I'm saying I think that's how many Remainers see it. Okay, um... Well, not all Remainers, I'd say, but uh, I mean, the case is, again, this probably hinges on on your idea of what sovereignty is. And 
traditionally, I mean, if you go back to Hobbes, sovereignty is absolute. You don't share it. You can't, uh, if you go to Locke, you don't, um, can't kind of give it away. So government cannot give someone else the power to legislate. Um, but the EU obviously cuts against all that. And the UK doesn't have absolute sovereignty um, over, say, food regulations or uh, work regulations. There's rules made centrally. Now, the way in Ireland we perceive it is it's shared sovereignty. So we are kind of giving up a certain amount of sovereignty, but we are deciding as well. Now, the difference between Ireland and the UK is um, the UK, before joining the EU, kind of more or less had complete sovereignty. So sterling, sterling is set in London, uh, food regulations all set in, in Westminster, all done there. Ireland, after independence, didn't have that experience. Ireland used its own currency, but it was uh, pegged to sterling. So it went up and down according to the needs of the people in the UK who were setting it. Um, we are Because we exported so much to the UK, our regulations tend to track UK regulations. And imports, again, easier if we're buying electronic devices. We uh, use the same as the UK because that's where we get our imports from. So from Ireland's point of view, moving to the EU is actually an increase in, maybe not in sovereignty, it's a decrease in sovereignty, but Paradoxically, it's an increase in control because we now have a say in these regulations where before we didn't. So it's kind of a bit like the difference between Hobbes' idea of um, freedom, which was freedom from interference, and the Republican idea of freedom for individuals, which is uh, that you don't bend the knee. Ireland, though completely sovereign and independent, was still in an, in an extent bending the knee because it had a large neighbour which kind of inadvertently or just through the power of being a big neighbour was affecting Irish regulations, Irish currency, a lot of things in Ireland. That's, so, that's uh, a nice yeah. analogy, and it might be that Britain has gone from um, shared control but not bending the knee to um, theoretical absolute control but in practice, yeah. we end up bending the knee quite a lot because we don't have anywhere near the influence in the modern world as a unilateral player that we thought we would have. And that actually, you know, so this would be the argument that I hear a lot of um, Remainers making is that, the, you know, you talk about sovereignty, but the truth is when it comes to, God knows, North Sea fishing rights, they always go on about, right? We were actually getting an okay deal out of the EU and now we're going to get a worse one. And, like, what, what difference does sovereignty make if, like, actually you end up constrained in your decision-making more? Is there anything to be said on the sovereignty side? Is there anything to be said on the side of people who just want that absolute control, even if it's symbolic? Well, I do, I mean, I do think sovereignty does matter. I mean, and you would, I think those people would feel the lack of it, if the UK was not setting its own laws, if the, EU, if the EU were doing what some people believe it or seem to believe it does, which is kind of basically control UK law completely and the UK has no say, that would be unacceptable. Um, and I, I personally don't find the idea of having 
perfectly pure sovereignty appealing if it means you starve to be very harsh about it. Um, actually, John Hume talking of Northern Ireland, John Hume's father used to say, you can't eat a flag. So basically, you know, um, so I mean, that's the problem. How pure are you going to be? If you make a free trade agreement, you have effectively given up a certain amount of control, your sovereignty. You cannot just make any law anymore. You cannot just arbitrarily change the free trade agreement you've just made. So you might, yeah, so you kind of can't keep that absolute perfect um, sovereignty. But I can see if you don't believe in pooled sovereignty as a thing, and if you, it really matters to you that British laws are made in Britain and they're not made anywhere else. And if even if it's only like 3% of the laws that get over, that the UK gets overruled, that that is just not acceptable. I mean, I can see it as an argument. It, I don't agree with it, but I, I can see it's a valid argument. Yeah, um, no, and I I find most of what's coming from the Leave side to be constitutionally and philosophically uncompelling. Um, but then again, what what gets said? So, what would be the devil's advocate argument to that? The devil's advocate argument would be, well, yes, for now, the EU is controlling like three percent of British laws, but we're clearly going down a path that ends in a nation state. Like that's clearly the aspiration of the yeah. EU even if they don't well. say it and we're going to we're going to wake up in a generation's time and we're going to be in the United States of Europe and no one will ever have really given been given the opportunity to express their consent or, or not now actually well, you see this is another interesting thing in in the UK debate which is the universalizing of aspects of the UK and I do feel that some of the UK management of EU membership has been problematic. I mean, famously, the Irish have voted on uh, new treaties. Hmm. And that is still going to be the case. So if there ever is a a further push towards a federal uh, kind of state of Europe, the Irish people get a vote in it. Now, that's not very consoling for people in the UK because they didn't promised a vote on the European Constitution. European Constitution didn't happen. They didn't get a vote. Lisbon was more or less a kind of um, a replacement for that. British people didn't get a vote on that. Um, I understand that in the UK you have a list system for choosing MEPs. We get to choose an individual. So if we don't like the way an MEP has been voting or we feel they're not performing in Parliament, in the European Parliament, we can vote them out, and you can't in the UK. So, yeah, I. So while I, I see what you're saying, and I, I know the devil's advocate argument, it does hinge on how it's happened in the UK, and it doesn't really reflect the reality that other countries in the EU have opinions are not necessarily in favour of a federal Europe, and do have a say. In whether that happens or not. Sorry and, to interrupt. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I think that's all right. And I think that that particular 
I don't know if it would be too hard to call it a conspiracy theory, but that particular feeling of grievance and that control was being stolen from us is Mm -hmm. uniquely British because of the history you've described, right? In that we have, let's be real, we have had less opportunity to give consent or or withhold it from the EU. We have. Um, But with that said... I think you see this with Trump's America. I think you see this with the five star in Italy. I think you see it with the ERG. Is is that there's a limit to? Um, it's often called the politics of grievance, but I think less politely you could call it the politics of conspiracy and scapegoating. That you just can't govern with it, right? That that if mm. your fundamental politics is there's this sort of global cabal of foreigners or Europeans or uh, on the really dark side, like Jews or something, right? Like, mm-hmm. if, if that's your fundamental, like, political identity, it would all be fine but for dot, dot, dot. Yeah, um, yeah. Then how do you govern? You just can't. And that's what you're seeing with the ERG, is they, they've... Um, I mean, I think where they're at is rationally intelligible, I think, They've stoked and manipulated um, people's fears for their own political and you know career advancement ends. But then, if you sort of just say, "But what do you want?" I mean, all they've got is really maybe hard Brexit. Um, they, 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 in a weird way, can't vote for May's deal because it would be to give up this sense of permanent grievance. Does that make sense? <laughs> Um, it does make sense, and I've heard people say it before. Um, I, I yes, I do wonder what would happen if if the UK did drop out with no deal. What exactly would happen in terms of the ERG, and how would they deal with that? Yeah, so we've agreed that sovereignty might be a good, but it has to be balanced out with other goods. Mm. Um. Final question. I, I I took to Twitter. Final one. Um, and I asked, um, yeah, any questions you'd want to ask about Brexit? And someone, <laughs> th- there was a few that we've gone through. Popular versus parliamentary. Um, oh, um, I'll leave left wing Brexit off because I-, I personally could be sympathetic to that, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um. Mm-hmm. Someone asked, is this an exercise in absurdism? Um, which I don't really know. <laughs> I, I, take okay. the, I take the spirit of the question, if not, I'm not sure exactly what they had in mind. Um, do, um, do, do you just think it is? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I'm actually reminded of um, somebody who's a lawyer who's been commentating on Brexit since mm. the beginning, called David Allen Green, uh, likes quoting a, a Samuel Beckett. Mm. Uh, so the the little bit where they go, where Vladimir says, "Well, shall we go?" and Escargon says, "Yes, let's go," and then the stage direction is, "They do not move." <laughs> so that's kind of he felt that that kind of summarised a large amount of Brexit where nothing happened. It was. All kinds of stuff was happening, and then we ended up in the same place. Or like, say, the, the White Queen and Alice, where she, you're running as fast as you can, mm-hmm. and you get nowhere. You have to run much, much, much faster to actually get anywhere. Um, so there is that element of, cons- I mean, and harking back to the past, it's kind of you're rerunning the 17th century, thank God, a lot more peacefully. Um, yes, it, it, maybe, maybe there's something there, right? 
I'll put this, and feel free to disagree with me, because people look at me crazy when I say this. I feel like the whole thing is quite rationally intelligible. Like, the outcomes mm. seem ridiculous. But of all the different players, um, even, like, the ERG, even, like, Labour... And I, I'm a Labour voter in the UK, right? Um, mm. And a lot of people have criticised Corbyn on this, and maybe rightfully so. But no one has a motivation that's fundamentally... What I don't see is a bunch of children squabbling. I see people responding to their ideological beliefs, which I may not share. And I see people sort of rationally pursuing either the um, interests of their stakeholders or they're just more cynical, immediate career and advancement interests. Mm. But I don't, I don't see anyone who's behaving in a way that's just starkly irrational. I think people, there's just people have very different incentives working upon them, and they're trying to make you know act according to their incentives as well as their ideological beliefs. And the result of all of that together has been paralysis. Mm. But this idea that it's just a bunch of children who don't know what they're doing doesn't seem right to me. It's, and, and even the reasons Brexit happened in the first place, as we've talked about, are rationally intelligible, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, these all sort of has been coming for a while now, like... I mean, I yes. could, go, I could yeah. go on, but like, like you say, because Britain has not been given a chance to exercise non-consent, because feelings of rage and paranoia and a sort of conspiracy that the Europeans are going to take you over, which owes a certain amount to our history, right, um, have been stoked. Because the Tory party needed some way of exercising this demon, because Cameron had got lucky and overconfident with calling referendums, and because he didn't want to get too specific and didn't think he could lose, we are here. And then because of the decisions that have been made we're here there's no there's nothing fundamentally mysterious or bizarre as i think some people look at it and just see a clown show does that make sense yeah i i agree it's it's almost greek tragedy where people have are coming with their particular points of view and everyone is trying to do their best in many ways and um it's just it's just dreadful. It really is. Um, yes, it's just been really, it just sometimes seems that num that everything that could have gone wrong with this process has gone wrong. Yes. Uh, oh, though, actually, that also reminds me of another point that has been uh, brought up at the start of the process and was brought up at the end of the process and is constitutionally relevant, which is the difference between, say, the American president hmm. and the difference between the prime minister. Yes, 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 yes. Um, the prime minister, uh, Theresa May, has been tending to go for loan runs. So right from the very beginning, where Article 50 was triggered to no notify the EU officially that the UK were leaving. Um, and she did that herself. And that um, resulted in a court case being brought um, that found that that was against uh, kind of the British constitution, harking back, as I said before, to the case of proclamations from 1608 and the Bill of Rights and lots of very venerable documents um, that the, the government cannot kind of like roll back laws 
uh, without uh, discussing with Parliament. And then that it kind of happened again. She didn't want to have a meaningful vote. And that basically got pushed through uh, with an amendment by Parliament insisting on it. You have, uh, so basically, in a lot of ways, she has been acting like a president. Same thing, putting forward, she came up with this withdrawal agreement, but there wasn't any consensus in Parliament for it. And so when it got there, it got voted down. And so in many ways, she's arguably acting much more like um, a US president than like a traditional prime minister would, who is basically the head of parliament, first among the equals, not a kind of monarch or a, a presidential figure who has their own independent powers and mandate. What's your read of May? Um, it seems like even on the left, there's very conflicting feelings of her, both as like a politician and a person. Um, I think she cares deeply about the Conservative Party and about the Union. And those two things have basically uh, resulted in this withdrawal agreement because she... I think she didn't always, but I think now she realizes that if there is um, a hard border, that that will end up pushing, tending to push Northern Ireland out of the UK. Um, and I mean, but the, she is also can't go for a soft Brexit because that's more likely to split her party. So this withdrawal agreement is kind of basically somewhere in the middle of that uh, conundrum. Um, I've, I feel like she doesn't, she is kind of inflexible and she is more comfortable doing things herself than kind of like building consensus or working in a big group and that's why she's going for this presidential style. I don't think she's got any kind of like Trump-like ambitions to kind of like dominate as such. I just feel she's more comfortable working alone. But it doesn't work in, in the UK constitution. UK constitution doesn't work that way. It's parliament. Parliament is sovereign. People are not sovereign. The PM is not sovereign. The sovereign is not sovereign. Parliament or the, the crown and parliament are sovereign. Yeah, um, and, and there's your constitution, your UK constitution under flex again, because that's difficult, because they don't quite know how to deal with this. I mean, last time they chopped off Charles II's head, but that is not a solution we are going for in the 21st century. No, and I do find it interesting um, that... Both because of the constitutional history that you described, but also any nation, or set of nations, I guess, in the UK's case, finding itself in this scenario, the person you would want at the helm is a consensus builder, right? Oh, completely. what What you really need is someone who can talk people from their first to their second preference, right? Yeah. And who can... Just get get you, these guys down a bit, and these guys down a bit, and these guys down a bit. And what we've ended up with is our two leading politicians, the Prime Minister and the leading of, leader of the opposition, is people who are in very different ways very much sectarian creatures of their own parties, and have mm. almost uniquely, even for modern political leaders in the UK, a very narrow, truncated vision of what is politically desirable and possible. Like, Theresa May is is a conservative politician, right? In in the, the, yeah. like, that is her identity. Um, yeah. 
And in a, in a similar way, even though he's a rebel against, you know, the parliamentary party, Jeremy Corbyn is a Labour politician. He sees himself as asserting the rights of the Labour Party over a corrupt neoliberal elite that's taken it over, right? They yeah. both see themselves in starkly party political terms, which is another thing that's made this so intractable. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yes, um... And I mean, Labour as well has the thing of wanting to get into power and uh, they've an interesting problem because Labour do not want to own, own Brexit because no. who would, frankly, um, but they want to get into power. So it's a, a difficult balancing act. Um, they can't they can't vote for the thing because then they are asserting a certain amount of ownership and that makes the, uh, an election less likely. So... Yeah, they've kind of got their own kind of paralysis going on. Yeah, and I mean, I think, I mean, there's a sort of cynical read of Corbyn, which is, like you say, he is okay with Brexit happening, but mm -hmm. he wants Theresa May to get all the blame for that, and that to become the thing that makes him prime minister, right? That's the sort of cynical yeah. read of his actions, which I think there's probably an element of truth to, right? But then on the other hand, what the fuck else is he supposed to do, right? Well, the big problem is that he's, uh, yeah, he's the, uh, yeah, the, he's the opposition party. It's odd. It's just odd. That is not how the English constitution or British constitution is supposed to work. Um, the whole point of first past the post is that you get your strong party with the majority and it can pass everything as long as the party is united behind it. But in this instance, well, firstly, Theresa May doesn't have a united party. And secondly, even if she did, she's depending on the, DU on the DUP for confidence and supply. Um, so it's just odd, the idea that Labour kind of have to support her. I mean, that isn't the norm, I would have thought at all, that uh, you'd have that situation. No, they're, they're asked to be, they're, they're being asked, like, because in a sense, right, if not voting for Theresa May's deal risks a hard Brexit, there is an argument that as ugly as that is, that is the responsible thing to do. I'm not immune yeah. to that argument. With mm. that said, here's, do you want to know actually why I think the Labour Party won't? And even though the parliamentary Labour Party hate Corbyn, they're not really, well, I mean, to say they're not breaking 10 MPs just did, but... Um, I think there's a feeling that, that when was it, 2017 general election? Um, yeah. Christ, that was a year ago? Anyway, um, I, know. Um, I think there's a feeling amongst the Labour Party, and I think Corbyn feels this very, very acutely, that the Tory party isn't just out to beat them in elections, it's out to destroy them. It's out to no longer have a British Labour Party. And that whenever they, they see the chance, the Tories essentially want to revert to themselves as the natural party of government with the Liberal Whigs as opposition. And the, the 2017 election wasn't really about Brexit. It was about stamping out the Labour Party. Now, I, I, I've worked for and I know Labour MPs and I know they believe that in their heart of hearts. Mm. And I think that's what Labour believes about the 2017 election and i think there's an element of truth to it if not the whole truth to it and i think that's why they just won't budge even in the national interest even to be responsible is they they feel like they've just escaped a firing squad and they're not mm. 
Theresa May isn't just a parliamentary adversary, she's someone who was an existential threat to them. I think that's how Labour sees it. Right, that's it. That's interesting kind of... Uh, again, I couldn't say... I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't feel confident enough to judge uh, UK politics, really. But certainly interesting take, yeah. I think that's I think that's where Labour's coming from. But then, of course, then how the fuck do you vote for her deal if that's what you feel about her? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it is it is a big problem, and I mean, it's not it isn't it's not a fantastic deal. It isn't it isn't no. a fantastic deal. Um, but the whole problem is again, um, what do you do if you are trying not to split your party? Is what? there? I still don't. I still sort of don't get what the ERG are playing at. Is there a way you could still get the Brexit they want through that deal? Or because to my mind, the deal is just like it just moves us on to the next step. It's just the framework for which we negotiate it. Or am I missing something there? You could still get a hardish Brexit within that. Not with uh, May. In the original version of the backstop, it was only Northern Ireland who would be aligned in terms of regulations and customs rules. Um, May's one has uh, the UK in a bare-bones customs union, and then you can't have the hard Brexit they want. You can't have Canada in that situation. But, but now, you could presumably like negotiate yourselves away from that. <sighs> Well, you see, that's the problem. Um, if people felt comfortable, if we'll say the ERG, if the, the ERG have said that the the border issue could be solved with technology, if you feel that if they really believed that, then they would vote for this deal, produce the technology, and there would be no backstop. So, no, it's not that simple. That's the problem that... Um, you know, whether you could really negotiate, how do you negotiate away from, you know, an open border? It's open or it's not. Checks have to be somewhere where the check's going to be. If they're not at the Irish Sea, they're on land. Or, you know, some people have even suggested that Ireland should accept being in a de facto customs union with the UK to facilitate an open border, which, no, isn't going to happen. But the checks, there's only three places the checks can be. Right. Could it be interpreted the other way, that within this deal May's got, you could pursue something close to Norway, i.e. we're in a de facto customs union and we just sort of stay there? Could it, could it be something she could market to Labour? I don't think she has the ability, and I think she has, with the 2017 election, poisoned that well. But there may have been some point in the past at which Labour could have been brought on board. Um, I seem to recall that immediately after the withdrawal agreement came back, it might have been after the first defeat, uh, Jeremy Corbyn sent Theresa May a letter listing out things he wanted from the deal. And one of them was, in the political declaration, a customs union. So that the customs union wouldn't be just a backstop option, it would be the front stop option. It would be what uh, the UK was working towards for Brexit. And, well, nothing has happened with that. I keep coming back to that. That's the only path I can see that sort of makes any sort of, like, democratic or constitutional or practical sense. Um, but I don't, I don't know that it will. Well, the other thing is, by the way, that a customs union isn't a Norway option. Norway option is being a member of, of EFTA, and it means having regulatory alignment 
not customs rules alignment. So the two things are slightly different. And Norway would actually do more to solve the issues around the Northern Irish border than uh, a customs union would. But the problem with the Norway option is you get freedom of movement. And that is that's besides the union and the party. There's uh, that's another thing Theresa May seems very keen on is not having freedom of movement after uh, the UK has left Europe. So yeah, which is why you can't get to this. Is that I mean that immigration is where this this is also coming from, which is just a concern. I guess I just don't share. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, the problem, this is the problem. It is so complex. It is so complex. And there's so much terminology, Norway and Turkey and Switzerland and, you know, hard Brexit, soft Brexit and the definitions change. Um, But I mean, if we go basically down the line of freedom of movement is a big is something that if you want to stop that, that means you cannot go for a Norway option. If you want to have trade deals, you are making it harder for yourself if you have a customs union. It's not impossible, but it is much harder. Um, ERG, let's say, don't want either. Um, and that would mean they are could, going for a could you, could you have full customs and trade alignment without freedom of movement? Because, I mean, I thought that was the European position was essentially you've got to take you, – it's a package deal. Yeah, the four freedoms. Um, if you're a member of uh, the um, EFTA, if you're in the single market, you have to accept the four freedoms, which is free movement of uh, capital, people, and goods and services. So, yeah, there isn't that option. If It would be like Theresa May spent a good bit of uh, 20, 2017, 2018, trying to get a form of single market, which would not include freedom of movement but no that is that is not a line that the eu is going to cross in my opinion the eu have played this very well because there's there's a there's an alternate universe in which brexit ended up being a disaster for the europeans in which it was like my god with all the benefits they offer and they still people hate them this much these bloody bureaucrats and so on (laughs) and britain just played it very cool took their time you know, like I say, pursued some very soft Brexit and just spent the whole time saying we're pursuing the will of the people and this bunch of bureaucrats is standing in our way. Whereas the the exact opposite has happened. The Europeans have come across very, very well. And I mean, you're you're close to but outside the UK. It seems like our our global standing has just just collapsed completely, right? Yeah. Yes, it's not been very edifying. I think maybe being closer, um, you're close enough to see a bit more detail and you can see kind of maybe why this is happening. But if you're just kind of getting, was it John Oliver on uh, yeah, uh, playing yeah, yeah, yeah. clips, it, it looks an absolute uh, omni-shambles to take a phrase. Um, it doesn't look edifying and it's it's not helpful, I don't think, for the UK you know, I mean, you the UK had such a good reputation in Europe as well. And just as the paralysis there's been, I think, has not been good for kind of UK as a kind of government or, you, you know, it hasn't been good for the British reputation in that respect. 
Um, yeah. I mean, there's a case. So this is where I'll really jump off the deep end with my devil's advocates. <laughs> Oh, okay. Isn't there isn't there a case that the British have handled it remarkably well? Because like, if you view this not as a matter of technical trade agreements, but as a matter of competing nationalisms, there's British nationalism, and there's also a sort of pan-European nationalism. And as much as they never really say it, I think the remain yeah the the remain side want to portray it as irrational nationalism versus rational concerns but actually they're clearly motivated by a sort of non-rational attachment to Europe as well um when you have a deeply divided society that's divided about the emotional connections it has to different forms of government this can get so ugly so fast i mean um, well, I mean, Northern Ireland, right? Um, but, but you don't even need to go there. Um, and Britain is, like, just muddling along. And as much as the ERG might have said there'll be blood in the streets if we don't get Brexit, everyone knows that's a bluff. Nobody takes that seriously. And is there not something to be said for in this sort of, like fairly understated way people have protested people have marched and the problem with parliament isn't that it's overriding the will of the people it's that it's too responsive to them um and we haven't devolved into this chaos that competing nationalisms usually produce that's a hell of a hell of a case but <laughs> is there something like the fact that there isn't blood in the streets is actually massively to britain's credit right now because because yes. But it kind of feels like that is really a low bar, do you not think? Um, but, I mean, <laughs> Paris is regularly on fire, and they are not in, in, a, in a case of existential constitutional crisis. That is just their new normal. Britain is yeah. managing to not be on fire no, while dealing with an yeah. existential crisis. Um, they, I, I would say that France have their own kind of existential crisis, that the Gilets Jaunes are basically reflecting a certain kind of um, disaffection and kind of feeling of being left behind and feeling of um, being ignored that probably also was um, ex an element in the Brexit vote. I mean, that people don't feel heard, say in the regions, they just didn't feel heard. Um so yes, it's a so yes, it is a is a credit that. Uh, but I kind of feel that's more due to the British people. Mm. You know, I mean, it, it kind of like okay, if there's no deal, that is kind of serious. That's going to have a serious impact on people, and it's kind of it. This is definitely the time to be kind of. Uh, protesting and writing to your MP and doing those kind of things. But yes, it's a definite credit that it, it isn't, given how chaotic things are in Parliament, how unchaotic things are in the rest of the country is is positive, all right. Yeah. But you do feel it's a little bit... You kind of would hope that countries would run themselves so that that wouldn't ever be a question. Do you know what I, do you know what I mean? The, the, the like, oh, the, the, the thought, because we are, it's a strange circumstance where in seeming seriousness I can say, we're doing well, there's not blood in the streets. And this is yeah. like, this is like a thing that makes sense as a sentiment. I mean, I guess, yes, number one, look, obviously 
um, no deal is to be avoided at all costs. And as much as I said I do value the democratic legitimacy of the vote, I don't think I value it that much, right? Um, But I guess the difference between Britain and France is this will end. I know it doesn't seem like it, but this we are going there is going to be a solution to this somewhere. It might not be one anyone likes, but this is going to end. Um France well... isn't. Italy isn't. Greece isn't, you know. Like and and this is this thing of everyone's looking at the UK and going, look at these clowns. Um look at what's happening in Europe. And, and Europe, as I say, is not in an existential crisis. This is just their normal. And yes, I mean, our, our, the, the behaviour of our politicians has not been edifying, but the, the, the British constitution, as weird and historical and, like, muddled as it is, has proved quite resilient in a weird way, and so have the British people. Um, that, 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 that's the, 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 the sunniest top spin I can give to it. But... There is that that other side to it. The one thing with the British Constitution is, um, as I said earlier, it's like a tree, or that was Yeats's definition of it, that it was a tree, that it grew, it evolved. Um, It's under strain in particular areas, one being kind of the fairly presidential style of May. uh, The other is trying to marry... Uh, basically like almost grow around some an alien thing like um you know referendums because that's just not a british constitutional oh that's and that is a beautiful metaphor like when a tree grows around like a bike or something that's got incorporated in it yes that's exactly what it is there's a lovely picture from King's Inns in Dublin of a tree eating a bench. It's called a hungry tree. So that's exactly what I was visualising, yes. So basically, um, the British Constitution is basically having to evolve again to kind of deal with these things. I don't see any reason why um, it won't manage to deal with May. And basically, if it doesn't, there will be a crisis and then it will evolve to do it. Um, that's what's happened every other time Uh, I'm not really seeing any particular reason to think it won't happen this time as well but obviously the constitutional crises times are not pleasant to live through, they weren't pleasant in the 17th century, they weren't pleasant in the early 18th century No, you know, we've got it better now than it was then, that's for sure Um, yeah, that that said about France, I'm not so sure that they, you know, it's they really have been, they are starting. Yeah, they're starting to get very unpopular um, with people who just like you know going to the shops on a Saturday. So Italy and Greece are longer term issues that are underlying, you know, the, their issues at the moment. But yeah. Uh, Yes, wouldn't despair of the UK at all. It's just a matter of getting past this. But it's not really true it's going to be over anytime soon because this is only the withdrawal agreement. Right. This is only the withdrawal agreement. There's still the trade part to be discussed. Um, it will actually be a huge help if there are indicative votes and everyone agrees that it's going to be Norway or Canada or whatever it is. And then, because then at least there will be an idea of what is going to be looked for in the trade agreements. Because right now, as far as I'm aware, the official British position is still 
checkers, if you remember that, which the EU said no. Oh, those those is- those sunny days of 2017 in <laughs> our youth, you know. <laughs> well, that is the having your cake and eating it option, which is not on the table. So if um, Parliament decides on some option that is on the table, that'll be a huge advantage. But you still have, you know, four years of trade discussions to go through with the EU. And what's worse is, you know, in theory, people say stuff like, oh, well, you, you even were talking about, you know, imagine if the EU had been divided. That would have been far worse for the UK than this. Um, the EU divided means everything's going to take twice as long. So we better hope the EU stays united. We better hope that the UK is going to find unity around something because it's going to take four years anyway. And it's going to be a lot more uh, argumentative and a lot more contentious. And then you have all the other trade deals that are going to come and you're going to have questions like, are you going to up, open up agriculture? Who are you trading off against? Are you going to encourage the car industry and lose the steel industry? Are you going to, uh, you know, help the sheep farmers and lose fishing? What are you going to do? People aren't going to like it. So, yeah, it, this is the problem with Brexit. It's like Pandora's box. You've opened it up. Okay, hope is in there. There's a heck of a lot of little demons waiting out there to to bite you. Yeah. And yeah, my point wasn't that we that Europe might have divided or it might have. My point was more that like the um, egg on the face could, in a counterfactual world, have ended up on the Europeans. But it's all the eggs have ended up on the UK government. Yeah. Um, in just in terms of like the perception of competence, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's. <sighs> Yes, it's not been not been great. I mean, but to be fair, I mean there's been there's some very competent people in Parliament on on all sides. It's just unfortunately they don't all seem to have ended up in the cabinet. So that's the other unfortunate thing. So where you you were hesitant to say where you want it to go. Where is this going to go? We're talking now on what Saturday twenty third. So, in theory, we're coming up on the deadline. The EU has suggested they can go beyond that, but only if we vote for the trade deal. And then if they don't, um, we'll get a much shorter extension to, what was it, April 12th. Yeah. I don't see the deal passing. No. No. But then what happens next? What uh, what it looks like right now is going to happen next is there will be a vote on, I don't have a list of options here, but of the different potential options. So, say, a free trade agreement, presumably with a Northern Irish backstop, May's deal, um, say, customs union, uh, Norway, uh, kind of Norwegian-style deal, those kind but of things. Presumably, we wouldn't have time to negotiate and pass any of that before April 12th. So we're heading towards a much longer extension. Yeah, it would basically be finding a, something that you liked and then going to the EU and saying, right, this is what we're interested in and we're going to need a bit more time to negotiate it. But again, if it was a softer Brexit, that would probably be easier. You could just actually change the political declaration and get that done by the 22nd of May. I really they, feel they like May can't and the Conservatives can't sign off on that. Yeah. Um, well, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and I mean, the danger is what happens if there isn't a, a, a something that everyone can gather around. Then you're basically looking at either a general election, a people's vote, 
or you're looking at crashing out with no deal. I don't really see any other options there. I maybe the EU would go for a, you know, an extension to try and find something else. But I have a feeling there is going to be a time where the road runs out. So there's the weird thing is, what do you do if you're the EU, right? Because say we get to April 12th, the deal Mm. hasn't passed, but there's no clear Mm. consensus on what Parliament wants either, which we're both agreeing is the most likely option, right? Mm. What do you do if you're the EU? Because in a weird way, the EU have been, like I say, I think they want to avoid the blame for this. They want to look like the grown-ups in the room, which is Mm -hmm. what I take their latest offer to be. Look, we're being the reasonable ones. You'll work it out, right? But then say we get to April 12th, in many ways, the fact that the EU is saying to Britain, all of your options are open, is perpetuating the paralysis, right? If the EU and Theresa May could work out a way of getting it down to an up-down vote with two options, then we could move forward. But that the EU doesn't is is seemingly quite reluctant to put its hand into British politics like that means it just keeps going on and on and on. But if it came to um, April 12th, and then the EU said, vote for the deal or it's hard Brexit. We're not doing another extension. Yeah. If they did some sort of ultimatum like that, then the risk of the worst case scenario just massively goes up. And it goes up in such a way that if it happens, the EU might get blamed for it. And so it seems like they're in a really difficult position of they can keep all the options open, but by keeping them open, they're essentially guaranteeing it just goes on forever. Or they can start to try and close the options down, but that would massively increase the risk and the risk of them getting blamed. Yeah. Well, the one thing about the 12th of April deadline is it's the last date you can have without having MEP elections. Right. And Theresa May has said that's totally, completely unacceptable three years after voting to leave the EU to have more elections to the European Parliament. So that is something of an incentive. The problem is that's an incentive for Theresa May, maybe. But is there an incentive for Parliament? Do they care as much as she does about that? I I don't think they do. And I think she'll end up being forced off it. Because she was said that we are leaving on the 29th. We are leaving on the 29th. I won't countenance a deadline. And here we are. Yeah, but that that hasn't been viable for since the beginning of March, pretty much, because there's just too much legislation to pass. That was never, even if even if somebody voted for it right now, just couldn't get the law passed in time. So um, I don't know why it took so long to go back and look for an extension, because it was going to be needed. And it's been clear for a while. Um, I really don't know. I don't know. Uh, on the one hand, as you say, the EU don't want to uh, be kind of precipitating no deal. On the other hand, the lack of a hard deadline. You see, yes, the, theoretically, the lack of a hard deadline um, is encouraging procrastination. But on the other hand, we're right up to the deadline and still nothing's been decided. So it's very hard to be sure that actually a hard deadline would, would improve things at all. 
So perhaps it would definitely be MEP elections. Maybe they'd extend. I don't know. Maybe they give a short extension. But but the, uh, don't if, know. There's only a long extension on the table, right? Like there's no. You, you can't just do another month. You can't have MEPs sitting for twelve days or something. I mean, maybe you can, but like, it, it, it's like it would have to be like another year. Well, the elections. You could have a really bizarre scenario where you run the elections. And then the elected British MEPs never actually sit because the the uh, the first sitting as such is the second of July. So you could actually have an extension, say, to the thirtieth of, Ju- of June, which but is what May weird, wanted. Which was what May wanted, but you'd have the weird thing of you'd be having elections for people who would never be sitting in Parliament. Maybe you get pension rights. I really don't know. Um, but again, that's I really only see that happening if, say, by some miracle, May's deal passed, or if a uh, something a fix to the uh, political declaration that goes with the withdrawal agreement was going to be was passed. You know, I, that's the only. T- then yes, I think you're looking at a, a long, a long extension. It's maybe end of the year. So yeah, what was that you were saying about Brexit ending? <laughs> it will pass. <laughs> it will. This will. This too will pass. <sighs> Let's hope so. Anyway, should we should we pause? So so basically, we don't know what ought to happen, and we don't know what's going to happen. That's what we resolved in all of that. Yeah, I mean, you've seen the Chris Mason thing where he, uh, in fact, you must, if you, it was on John Oliver, come to think of it, where he was going, you know, so what's going on? I don't know. Uh, a few times. Uh, it was very funny. But yeah. it, it is, it's, that's exactly what it is. I really have no idea what's going to happen. I really don't know how long, oh, you see, and the problem with extension is, just needs one EU country to go, no. Macron in France is setting himself up to be that country. Well, yes, but I kind of wouldn't be surprised just the way everything has been if it was turned out to be someone totally different out of left field and they just go... Like Latvia or something just comes out of the blue, you know? Uh, That's it. We've had enough of this. Just, yeah, just bring it on. Um, Yeah, well won't be Ireland, I would be very surprised. It's just we kind of are hoping that there will be some kind of agreement that Northern Ireland gets gets a solution. And I mean, it is difficult. And for Northern Ireland, there's a whole sovereignty issue. Um, and I mean, about having the right to discuss or to accept laws. What's you know? the what's the like proverbial man or the woman on the street in Ireland, Republic of Ireland? feeling like like we want this to be over with a solution that doesn't close the border what what's the yeah basically um okay if i'd say a lot of people especially farmers and business they would read well a lot of people would actually there's there is a small cohort who still think that maybe just maybe a miracle will happen and uk will decide to stay um, I think most people don't think that's going to happen. You have a lot of like farmers and business. If they if they had had a magic wand and would wave, it would be UK staying in the EU, or it would be um, a, a Norway agreement, something close, so that uh, trade could continue, business could continue, pretty much as it is now. Um, no, 
I think most people really feel that's probably not going to happen. Um, so after that, then you're getting to the, uh, well, at least keep the border open, <laughs> at least keep the cross-border cooperation going, at least keep the peace processes on, on track. Um, and obviously nobody wants a hard Brexit. Nobody wants a uh, no deal. Apart from the people who do. <laughs> no, I don't really think anyone in Ireland wants no deal. No. It doesn't benefit anybody here. No, no, I was thinking in the UK, but yeah, yeah. So we'll, you know, in a week's time, we'll know that May's deal has failed a third time. Yeah, you say that with such certainty, it kind of seems weird to say you'll know it then. You know it now. That's a fair point. <laughs> um I mean, Actually, maybe, like I'd give it like, but, but it, 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 a very best has what like twenty percent odds. I, I don't know. I'd take a bet any higher than that. Um, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't take an even money bet that it would. Pass. Listening to RTE's Brexit Republic podcast, apparently some in Europe are putting it at five percent chance of passing. I'd give it ten on the basis that who the fuck knows at this point. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. But. Yeah, it's no. No one thinks it's fifty. No, no, no. So if it doesn't pass, what are the odds that Parliament can come to a consensus about? I mean, I've sort of been like doing somewhere between customs and union and Norway is what I think is the way forward. But I don't know that there's a parliamentary majority for that either. Because mm. I don't. I don't think the Tories want that. So then. Then, so we we basically know we're going to be in a place in April. I mean, who knows? April 12th comes and maybe, like, there's been a second referendum already. But realistically... No, it's not enough time for the to get the legislation in. You'd, you, it, if it's a second referendum, you're looking at end of year for extension. Um, but so, we, we're either coming back to the EU with a different plan for mm. an extension, in which case we get the extension. Yeah. Or we're coming back to the EU with no plan for an extension. <laughs> yes. And it's the latter, right? We're going to be coming back to the EU for an extension with no I'm, plan. I'm slightly more optimistic than you are, but it's not. It's certainly far from inconceivable, yeah, that we'll be back with no plan. And then I don't know what happens. Fuck. This is going to be interesting to listen back to in a couple of weeks. Yes. Well, this is this is the this is the thing, and same with. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts which go through what happened last week in Brexit, and it is amazing how people are saying things, and then you listen back weeks later, and it's it's totally different, or it's back to the way it was before, or whatever. You know, it, it's. Uh, it's quite well, astonishing. We haven't given ourselves the benefit of the doubt here. We've recorded this at a point where really we could be anywhere a month from now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, that, that, that ran over, but like, I thought that was, that was fun and I've wanted to do Brexit for a while. If people want to um, uh, follow your blog on... Uh, do you want to say a little bit about your blog and where people should go if they want to follow it? Okay, um, I'm on Twitter at Irish Philosophy, all one word, and I am on uh, my blog address is www.irishphilosophy.com. 
So that's all one word, irishphilosophy.com. All right. People should go check that out. Thank you so much for coming on, Kathy. I really appreciate your time today. <laughs> Thank you. It was a pleasure. You can just go to patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast and any donation that you choose to make is much appreciated. A lot of people sponsor the show from two bucks an episode. So in other words, if the episode you just heard was as interesting and as vitalizing or as bitter and unpalatable as a cup of coffee, consider sponsoring it on a similar sort of basis. But it's really whatever you choose to do. And I'm deeply grateful for everyone who does sponsor the show. It allows us to go out for free, bringing these conversations to thousands of people. And it allows us to do so ad-free. I cover all of the costs of this podcast through listener support. I've decided not to run ads on it. Just at the end of every episode, I ask if the audience can chip in. And that's it. Because I, I think like having that just two-hour uninterrupted thing you just heard was lovely. I'm such a nerd for this stuff, and I think it was great to have that without having to interrupt it with advertisements or pitches for a sponsor. So to help us keep doing that, if you want to check out our Patreon page, again, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, please do that. As always, a big thank you to all of you, and it's actually grown to a sizable chunk, who are sponsoring the page on Patreon, you're making it possible for me to do this. And so I'm genuinely, deeply grateful for that. Really. I'm grateful for everyone who listens, everyone who shares. I love all you guys. If you want to follow the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do so. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud. I think most people by now probably listen to it through a podcast app. So if you just go to your favorite podcast app and search for Political Philosophy Podcast, I think most of them have us and the option to subscribe. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. As I mentioned, I've been a bit more active on Twitter recently, so please do give me a follow there if you're interested in my more day-to-day thoughts. You might not be, I wouldn't blame you, but those are all the different places you can get the podcast at. And the links to all of them are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So that's everything from me this week in, I think, our longest ever episode. Next week, we will return to regular programming. And this one's gone on long enough, but next week... Um, I'm going to sort of just openly ask the audience what sorts of things they might want to see on the podcast in the future as I try and schedule some more guests. Also, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm probably going to do some Twitter polling about what sorts of content listeners would like to see. So sign up on Twitter to take part in that. Otherwise, thank you for listening. Thank you for everyone who supports. And I hope you'll return again next week.